What is love? What's happening in our brains when we're falling for someone? And why are we wired to form deep, meaningful connections? I'm Anna Machen, and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. In this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains, from before birth to after death. And this week, we're looking at the neuroscience of love. We used to, at the start, always say, like, this is actually really great because every time we see each other, it's like a little holiday, even if we're just visiting each other. Those increases in their love scores were associated with activity in some of these key regions. And biobehavioral synchrony, I think, is the scientific explanation for the sense of being someone's soulmate. This is how we're wired. I love love. So much so that I've spent years studying it. Whether we're gay or straight, man or woman, our closest relationships with our partners, best friends or close family members help make us who we are. And unpicking those complexities as a scientist has been deeply fascinating. Because the science of human love is complex, just as the story of any one relationship can take its twists and turns. I'm Seraphin. I'm 29 years old. I'm a freelance journalist and I live in Berlin and sometimes Manchester. <laughs> and I'm Megan. I'm a freelance theatre director and I run a feminist art collective and I live in Manchester mainly and yeah, sometimes in Berlin. I'd had a very consciously single year because I'd gotten out of a really difficult relationship. But come summer, I'd been single nearly a year and I was like, Do you know what, I'm ready for a bit of fun. But I definitely don't want to actually find a boyfriend. Megan has a friend in Berlin. She was visiting said friend and they all together went to a club. In a way, that part is sort of almost traditionally cute because we just locked eyes on the dance floor, as we like to say, and just made out <laughs> and then sort of lost lost each other and then later in the night when we were all leaving we were like well that was fun probably never see you again and then we did <laughs> that's the driver <laughs> i've never met someone who's like so sort of like confident and self-assured and sort of chill in themselves but without arrogance and without taking up too much space and having to be the centre of attention. But you're also, like, letting everyone else do their thing. So hard not to break out into just cliches, right? It's sort of almost like there is that walking on the clouds kind of vibe, I think. Right? It's sort of a thing, even if something else is annoying, you can just draw on it and, and, and it makes you happy just by thinking about it. Seraphine and Megan have been together for just over four years hopping back and forth between Manchester and Berlin to see each other, sometimes for days and sometimes for months, becoming closer and falling in love. And now, confronting some of the challenges that come along with being in love. We'll talk about these a bit later. So what is happening in the brain during that first stage of butterflies and excitement when we're falling in love? I sat down with our producer Eva, as it just so happens I know something about that. So the first question yeah. is a biggie. Okay. 
What is love? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> okay, so that's really the, the title of my job for the last 15 years has been to try and answer that. Basically, love is affected by two key dimensions in humans. The biological dimension, and that's things like your genetics, your psychology, your neural activity, your basic physiology. And a cultural dimension. And that's things like what you've been told about what love is in your society. If you're religious, what your religion says is acceptable, what is unacceptable, what your family think, what your friends think. All of those things also go into that definition of what love is for you. Let's start with those biological underpinnings then. What is happening in the brain of someone when they are falling in love, for example? Okay, it's amazing, the human brain, and it is the ultimate dating machine. Let's say you lock eyes across a crowded room with somebody and you get that feeling of hello. And what's happening in the core of your brain is a part of your brain called the nucleus accumbens is lighting up. It's an unconscious part of the brain, but it's rammed full of oxytocin and dopamine receptors. And oxytocin and dopamine are two neurochemicals that are key at the start of relationships. And they work really well in partnership. Oxytocin, it's known as the cuddle hormone, the love hormone, but actually what's important about it is... In those very first nanoseconds of attraction, it lowers your inhibition to actually making social contact with someone. And it does that by quietening the fear centre of your brain, which is the amygdala, tiny, tiny little structure at the core of your brain. And we all know when you see someone across the room and there's that nagging little, oh, you know, I'm going to walk across the room, I'm going to declare my undying love, they're going to completely ignore me, I'm going to walk back, it's going to be horribly mortifying. <laughs> that quietens it. So mm. you feel more confident, you feel more okay. And then dopamine is the hormone of vigour. It's the hormone of motivation. So oxytocin's marvellous. But it might make you feel so calm and so chilled that you actually don't get off the bar stool and go make an effort. So what dopamine's saying is, OK, you've spotted somebody. Now you actually have to go make an effort. And oxytocin and dopamine do that. And they do it in those first absolute nanoseconds. And when you see somebody, you've taken in loads of sensory information. The algorithm in your head has run. And all the all the calculations have been made of, is this person right for you? Da, 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 from physical sensory features. It's gone ping. Yes, indeedy. Oxytocin and dopamine floods your system. The core of your brain, particularly in the nucleus accumbens, lights up and off you go. And that's what happens at the start. At the start, it's very much an unconscious process. You don't put a lot of thought into it. If we were to put somebody in a scanner at that very moment, we would just see the core of the brain lighting up. So we walk into the club, we see someone across the room, they catch our eye, we go chat to them, we've got oxytocin and dopamine flooding our brains. What happens next? Okay, what happens next is we have a a third one that comes onto the scene, a third neurochemical, and... To be absolutely honest with you, we're still not entirely sure what it does. We know it's there. It's serotonin. Again, people have heard of serotonin. It's implicated in some mental health disorders. But we think serotonin underpins the obsessive element of love because you do have to be vaguely obsessed with the person that you want to be in a relationship with to coordinate your life with them, to be bothered how they feel. And so what we think happens is is a little bit later along the line, maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks, serotonin comes into the picture. But what's really interesting about serotonin is whereas oxytocin and dopamine go up, serotonin goes down. Ah, but if you hear that as the happy Yeah, and it's really interesting. But what we know is people who suffer from OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, have low levels of circulating serotonin. So what we think actually is it's important that serotonin drops, even though it is your happy chemical, because it's actually making you slightly obsessive about the person. And that is why when you first fall in love, you daydream about them all the time or you bang on endlessly about them to people. Or like when you have a baby, you constantly stare at their toes. You need that obsession, even though it's reducing a little bit of the happiness. But having said that, you've got dopamine and oxytocin to replace them. 
it's important. So that's what we think is happening there. We also see the signal moving in the brain from the subcortical area, which is the limbic area, that nucleus accumbens, the chordate areas like that, into the outer area of the brain. That's your walnutty bit that you see. And in particular, the prefrontal and orbital frontal cortex, which is behind your forehead. And that's important because that's where the conscious bits of relationships and love sit. Okay. And What's interesting about human love compared to like the love you might see in, a, in some of the rodents that were first studied to get all this stuff um, is that we have a very conscious element to our love. We contemplate it. We reflect upon it. We decide we're going to change something. It's also where empathy sits, where trust sits, where reciprocity sits, where maintenance sits. And it's very important that we have that conscious element as well. So what you see is, is the signal in the core of the brain has moved a little bit to the chordate so that's a, a sort of curved structure above the nucleus accumbens and that's got lots of connections to the prefrontal cortex so really important so that you can have conscious and unconscious experiences about the same thing at the same time so that has moved as well so we start to see this developing pan as lust in a way moves towards love and ultimately in the months that come what will happen actually is a new neurochemical will come into the mix and that's beta endorphin and whilst oxytocin and dopamine are important and they stay there, the problem with them is that they, A, their effects are quite short-lived and B, we grow tolerant to their effects. And if you think about human relationships, they have to undergo decades together sometimes. We need something really powerful that's going to bond you to that person for decades and that's where beta endorphin comes in. And the reason why we know about beta endorphin and it's actually the, the one we really studied at Oxford is because it's actually what bonds our primate cousins. They also build relationships for a very long time and they rely on beta endorphin. It's actually what's released when they groom. And beta endorphin is an opiate. It's very ancient. It actually underpins your pain system and it's addictive. And it's produced by lots and lots of different behaviours that we do with people that we love. It's underpinned by lots of things we might do with our friends, by laughter, by dancing, by singing, by touching, by exercising, by having a particularly hot, spicy meal. Um, <laughs> lots of things produce beta endorphin. So it underpins all our different sorts of relationships and it can do it for decades. It might be surprising to hear that you can get the same hit of wonderful opiates from being in love, but also just having that spicy meal on a Friday night. That's because beta endorphin is a really ancient chemical. And not only does it underpin things like bonding and laughing with our friends, but it also underpins pain management in your body. And therefore, that slight pain and joy that comes with a spicy meal gets a hit of beta endorphin. And the amazing thing is that, as Seraphin and Megan and other long-distance couples can attest, these neurochemicals can be released even when physical proximity isn't possible. If we're long distance in that moment, can it work literally just because of our brains? We evolved to bond in person. At the very basic bonding level, it's a very sensory experience. It's all about touch and smell and sight and hearing and all those sorts of things. So it is harder. But having said that, with sort of we're quite lucky to live in a digital age because we know actually that if you try and connect at a long distance on something which kind of exploits as many of those senses as possible. So, for example, what we're doing here, a Zoom call or a FaceTime or whatever, and you get to see the person and hear the person and have a sensation of their moving body and all that sort of thing, then you still get the neurochemistry. Whenever people say to me, yeah, what, what should we do? when we're That, if you are apart, is the best way of communicating because you're getting as close to being in person as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like I how close and connected I feel to you. There's like such a direct correlation of like if we've 
not spoken for much and only been texting to like yeah if I've like sat down and had like an hour on FaceTime with you I feel just like so much more connected so much more like in the relationship so much more positive like being long distance I do think you know can be a curse and a blessing we used to at the start always say like this is actually really great because every time we see each other it's like a little holiday even if we're just visiting each other but you know you make the time and you do all the different things that you maybe normally wouldn't do even in your own city and that was just so exciting right and the craving is i think a little bit less actually for that adventure but a little bit more for that comfort mm, yeah I like really the couch is, is, is yeah it's alluring. a long, long for place that we never get to <laughs> Another important part of romantic relationships for most people is, of course, sex. But despite that, for love researchers like myself, sex isn't often our main focus. Eva's going to explain. As the saying goes, every generation thinks that they invented sex. And every generation is wrong. Sexual reproduction first evolved in tiny single-celled organisms about 2 billion years ago. That's more than 1.3 billion years before the first animals with nerve cells that could even experience pleasure came about. But now, we know that the human brain is wired to enjoy sex. All the way from initial desire to orgasm, the brain regulates both ancient structures like the hypothalamus and the limbic system and more evolutionarily recent structures like the prefrontal cortex to create pleasure. By the time you orgasm, scientists have suggested that more than 30 major brain systems are activated. And some of the same neurochemicals involved in love are also involved in sex. Dopamine and serotonin both play a role, and the bonding hormone oxytocin is released during sexual activity in both men and women. But, ultimately, sex is a fleeting experience. It may help bond us to our partner in the short term, but deeper attachment, that we might call love, relies on different, more complex brain activation patterns that can last over very long periods of time. From the highly passionate to the platonic, the way we form attachments is to some degree a learned behaviour. And it doesn't happen overnight. Learning how we love is a process and the neurochemicals involved in that process are important right from when we're really young. And I'm talking really young. So let's dig into oxytocin a little bit. The other place you hear about oxytocin is in mothers with their babies, Mm. because when you have a baby, you have a rush of oxytocin. So you hear. So can you tell me what is happening there and why is the same thing involved in this sort of romantic falling in love? I really fancy you phase as well as, oh, I've had a baby. Yeah. Okay. so oxytocin in mothers and children, obviously the first big hit of oxytocin you have as a mother to be, actually, is during childbirth. So oxytocin is the hormone that allows contractions to begin. And so actually, it's actually just a side effect of oxytocin that it causes bonding. But it's a wonderful side effect that obviously evolution got hold of and went, oh, brilliant, particularly in animals where... We need a lot of maternal care, so we see in mammals. Because you've gone through all that childbirth. Luckily, a side effect of of the uterine contractions and the oxytocin is that you also start to feel bonded to your baby, which if you're a parent and you know how knackered you are (laughs) when you've given birth, you actually need that. It's really important. So you start to orientate towards the baby. You start to feel confident with the baby. You start to be a bond to the baby. 
Maternal love is the first love that evolved. And what we think probably happened is through evolutionary time, it's been co-opted into that area. And it's ultimately now seen in all close social relationships. So, you know, you will get a release with your friends, with your family, even when you pet your dog, you will get a release in oxytocin. It's, it's a really universal touch bonding hormone. And does everybody have, you know, if oxytocin is so important for social bonding, which is so important for sort of human evolution over time, does everybody make the same amount of oxytocin? No. no. No, absolutely not. And it's one of the reasons why, again, we see differences in people's social behaviours, in their feelings of love, in their motivation, for example, to to have relationships. So people low circulating oxytocin tend to be much less interested in forming relationships. They tend to be less empathetic. So no, and that seems to be controlled by two, the classic nature-nurture debate. So there are there is some genetic underpinning to that and particularly oxytocin receptor gene variation of that seems to affect amounts of oxytocin circulating in the body, but also your upbringing. So we know, for example, that children who are raised in very secure environments, they tend to have higher circulating oxytocin than children who aren't, for Mm. example. So it's this real mishmash that is what will give you your level of a circulating oxytocin. So, and I think it's really important to understand that. And that's where a lot of these individual differences come from. So how big a role does the genetics play from what we know in determining what your oxytocin level is going to be? That's a really tricky one because we started studying genetics at Oxford probably about 10 years ago. And we looked at the oxytocin receptor gene first simply because it's what we call highly polymorphic. So it comes in lots and lots and lots of different versions. And because of that, it underpins apparently quite a lot of the variation. The thing to say is, as we all know, genes are not deterministic. So just because you have a gene that suggests you have lower circulating oxytocin or you may be lower in empathy or whatever it might be, doesn't mean that's going to come out. So you can't necessarily take a person, look at their DNA and say, all right, you are going to be a super social person or you're going to be an antisocial person. Is that sort of taking the science a bit too far right now? I would say that's taking the science a bit too far. What we tend to find with people when we genotype them and we give them their results is quite often they will go, oh. Hmm. And for them, it seems to explain something. But I would never go as far as to use it predictively because I don't think you can because you have to understand intimately what happened in their environment when they grew up. And also, some of these genes are what we call armor-plated genes or they're differentially susceptible. And what that means, if you, if you carry this version, of, for example, of the oxytocin gene, your environment has less of an impact on you. Mm. So your genes are actually more likely to express themselves. But what's brilliant about it in one sense is if you're in a neglectful environment as a child, they're like armour-plated genes. The environment, that neglectful environment, seems to impact you less than it would somebody who hasn't got those. And therefore, you will meet people who have had really quite awful upbringings, but actually seem to be socially fine Mm. and build lovely attachments and all these sorts of things and that's because they have these armor-plated genes so it's really complicated what's happening in a child or an infant who's being raised what's happening in their environment to affect how they're going to form attachments later so if you're in a lovely nurturing environment and you have a secure attachment your parents are really keyed into your emotional physical needs then you are you've got a prefrontal cortex that's being bathed in the most amazingly gorgeous chemicals oxytocin dopamine beta endorphin and you build this lovely dense gray and white matter in that area everything's beautifully connected you have a lovely high circulating oxytocin you're good to go your amygdala is nice and calm great 
If the alternative happens and you're brought up in a neglectful environment, it might be that you just simply do not get levels of care, nobody ever meets your emotional needs, you might be physically or sexually abused. Unfortunately, what tends to happen is, is neuronal death in the prefrontal cortex. And what we actually see of children who are neglected is they have much less dense grey and white matter in that area. So they actually simply do not have the number of neuronal connections in that area that a child who's brought up in a, in a good environment mm. does. And therefore they really struggle to be able to comprehend, to be able to deal with relationships. They tend to have much lower level circulating oxytocin mm. and, and beta endorphin and their amygdala tends to be hyper, hyperactive. So it's constantly on alert. And that is why when they go forward into the adult world, they're just not, they don't have the brain architecture to deal with what is going on. And that is why those first two years are so absolutely critical. And I think it's something which those of us who work in that area are trying to push now in terms of child raising. Because we, we are very obsessed with children at school. But actually, those first two years are the years where that really supportive, empathetic, nurturing interaction is critical for that child because you give them that foundation and then that is what everything else is built upon. There are other important factors that shape how you love too. One of the most important factors is the culture in which you were raised. Studies from around the world have shown the answer to the question, what is love, varies hugely between different ethnicities. For example, in some areas of Brazil, when we define love, it's all about sacrifice and giving of yourself completely to the other person. However, when we look at people in the West, it tends to be all about individual achievement and finding someone who allows you to be yourself. Our cultures, informed by our religion, our politics, our history, really tell us a lot about what we think love is. And importantly, the relationships you both had with your caregivers and witness being modelled for you can play a role. I'm, a, I'm an only child and uh, my mum raised me by herself. So I'm definitely conscious of the fact that I never really had a relationship that was sort of modelled in front of me, especially in forming years. My mum had boyfriends and like some of them like for a few years and some of them I had relationships with, but it was never a sort of co-parenting situation she was quite conscious to my not mom do was that, always right? sure to sort of make a separation between us and she was also always sure to make a distinction and say my son comes first so it's sort of so i feel like i have a, a very i think i have what i learned from my mom is a very healthy relationship with myself i genuinely don't really know what it what it looks like i think like what my idea of a healthy relationship is. Yeah, no, my, my parents, are, they've been together since they were like 17 and, and married since they were 21, but it's just like they've never worked out how to be together. <laughs> They're still married. They used to be the annual we're getting divorced thing for around 10, 15 years. That's, that's stopped now, but they still have like explosive fights and week-long standoffs and... A lot of that was like shared with me from a very young age. Like like that really happened since I was like tiny. Like I think I got from them that it's like you stay and you I think I did get the thing of like find someone to hold on to. <laughs> and then... yeah, but you're you're independent, but I'll always be here. I think that's maybe the important part that makes the yeah. relationship, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, definitely. One of the ways psychologists have tried to quantify the different approaches to love relationships is called attachment theory. The idea is that we can look at how we handle relationships in two dimensions. 
how anxious we are in our relationships and how we deal with proximity and intimacy. The theory puts you in different categories depending on how you answer a questionnaire about your relationship, which we asked Seraphine and Megan to fill out for us. So there's four categories, secure, which means that you're low, low anxiety and you're very, very comfortable with proximity. There is preoccupied, which means you're high in anxiety, but you are comfortable and actually probably positively crave proximity to make yourself feel better. There's dismissing avoidant people who don't want proximity and actively react against it, but also have very low anxiety. They're not actually particularly relationship focused at all. And then we have fearful avoidant people who are both anxious and rejecting proximity so they don't get hurt. So, Seraphine, you are secure, which is probably not surprising, <laughs> listening to how you were brought up and how you, were, how you feel. Um, so, yes, you are very comfortable. You don't spend a lot of time feeling anxious that Megan's going to leave you. And also you're very comfortable with physical and emotional intimacy. It's not a problem, but you don't cling. You don't need that person there all the time to make you feel secure. Um, Mm -hmm. Megan, you are preoccupied. And what Mm -hmm. that means is you're very high in anxiety about the relationship. (laughs) And you did score, it's out of seven, 4.55, which is pretty high. So you do carry a lot of anxiety about the relationship and about its stability and about Seraphine abandoning you but you are comfortable with proximity so you don't you don't try and avoid intimacy so do either of those come as any sort of surprise to either of you (laughs) No, no, (laughs) no. i think listening to what you said about your parents it's not surprising that you are preoccupied if that's the example and that was the environment in which you were raised because you Mm -hmm. are in a situation where it sounds like there was a lot of flux the annual, you know, saying about divorce and things like that, that that's going to leave someone feeling pretty unstable and pretty insecure mm, yeah. about how things go. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting what you said is like, I think that it's not just your childhood relationships, it's also like all your close relationships. Because I think there's like definitely been like patterns with my previous relationships. Yeah, that obviously make like massive impact. Like, you know, I've, you're extremely trustworthy and dependable and I consciously don't think you're going to suddenly leave me. But like, I have like nightmares all the time and like stuff like that. And like, if a little thing happens that rocks it, I will emotionally respond as if it's a much bigger thing yeah and attachment is very very influenced by i'm afraid everything else you've experienced um and it is an instinctual thing it's it's a real sort of fight flight freeze type uh, Mm. mentality attachment and that's and that's why it can be so influential upon people's relationships the news is that as a preoccupied person if you're with someone who's very secure over time actually you have a very high likelihood of becoming secure yourself you're welcome Oh, you become anxious. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, I had to go through that process myself. When I met my husband 26 years ago, I was preoccupied. I was really quite highly anxious, very worried he was going to abandon me. You know, it caused quite a few issues, actually, in our relationship. And then he is secure. And actually, as living with him and learning that and having my fears disproved, he didn't abandon me. I put him through it. He did not abandon me. has actually made me secure. If it's more embedded than that, sometimes it can need therapy. 
and there's a certain sort of therapy called attachment therapy which helps people to talk through where this might have come from what the what the prompts are what the triggers are and things they can do to try and act against it and then unfortunately particularly for children who are badly neglected then we actually have attachment disorders and attachment disorders are very difficult to overturn they can be really quite detrimental to the child and that needs intensive therapy and intensive behavioral and, and therapeutic interaction We've talked a lot about the beginnings of love. But what about as relationships grow deeper and last longer? Can we use science to better understand what helps some couples stay together? I spoke with Professor Bianca Acevedo at New York University. We investigated the changes in neural activity in response to the partner newlyweds who were recently married and then one year after the wedding. And one thing that we found is that for some of them, their romantic love increased over the first year of marriage, and that those increases in their love scores were associated with activity in some of these key regions like the ventral tegmental area, the nucleus accumbens and the caudate, and the periaqueductal gray. And specifically in association, we examined two genes. We examined an oxytocin gene and a vasopressin gene. That's been widely examined for being associated with pair bonding. And they showed with this, with this gene, an interaction with activity in regions that have been also shown in people that stay together and in love over time. But here in the newlyweds, they showed it in association with their romantic love score increases over the first year of marriage. So these people who were increasing in romantic love in that first year, they carried a version of the oxytocin receptor gene that seemed to somehow promote the pair bond. So there were some people in your study that didn't see that increase. And was that correlated to a different version of the gene? That's correct. So the the versions of the genes that we were examining, so the oxytocin gene that's associated with empathy and pro-social behaviors, and the vasopressin gene associated with pair bonding. So both of those showed an interaction with the romantic love scores and brain activity. If they're there, your brain lights up. If they're not there, you're still craving to be with them. There is some evidence that there are a few things that are associated with people maintaining these strong feelings of love, even if they're married. And one of the things that I thought was very encouraging was that people's positive thoughts about their partners was associated with the strength of the love for people married five or 10 years or more. And we found that in the US and New York specifically, that those individuals who were reporting that they were still intensely in love with their long-term marriage partner also reported these other things like thinking positively about them, doing exciting things with them. The other thing that we've examined is sex satisfaction. So whatever right. that is to them. And so we see that the individuals who are married and report higher sex satisfaction also show stronger activity in these areas that are important for peer bonding, reward, and also in association with some of these important genes. But what about when love doesn't last? It can take time for the brain and body to catch up after heartbreak. They brought individuals into the Brain Imaging Center who reported that they had recently been rejected by somebody that they were still in love with. So they're still pining for this person and they're having a hard time letting go. So when they see images of, of these individuals, they still show some activity in regions that we see in people who are in love and in a relationship. So they're still craving for them. They're showing that important 
pattern in the accumbens that we also see in people who are having complicated grief. So they've lost somebody they love and they haven't resolved it. And that's different from normal grief. But what was interesting was that they also showed the longer the time since the breakup, they started to show weaker activity in regions that are also important for attachment, suggesting that hopefully it will get resolved for them. But for some people, it's a clinical diagnosis. There's even broken heart syndrome, officially called Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, which stems from sudden acute stress like a bad breakup that can weaken the heart muscle, which can feel like you're having a heart attack. And part of the reason the end of a relationship is so painful is because of the beta endorphin we talked about earlier, which increases when you are in love. The way beta endorphin works is just like, I'm afraid, heroin works, any opiate works. So when you're with the person, you get a hit of beta endorphin, which is an opiate. It makes you feel euphoric, it makes you feel warm, it makes you feel calm makes you feel really, really empathetic, really tied into that person. Um, when you go away, that source of opiates has disappeared and therefore you are drawn by this need to satiate your now addiction back to the person. Mm. It's a really simple mechanism and that's what underpins human love. And that is why when you're away from someone, it can feel really quite physically painful as well because your body is in a neurochemical and psychological withdrawal. The other thing that's happening, which I feel is fundamentally one of the definitions of love, is when you are really in that bonded attachment stage, then you get this thing called biobehavioural synchrony. And biobehavioural synchrony, I think, is the scientific explanation for the sense of being someone's soulmate. Because what happens when you're with someone you're closely bonded to? Everyone knows this. You all match their body language. Yeah, we just do it naturally. And we match their vocal tics and all that kind of thing. But if we look inside the body, what happens then is that Various physiological measures come into synchrony as well. So your body temperature, your heart rate, your blood pressure will also come into synchrony simply by interacting with that person. If we looked in the brain, we would also see synchrony and neural activation. And you can even do this the other way around. You can say you can put two people in a scanner and just by the degree of similarity of their neural activation, you can tell how closely bonded they are. Wow. Now that is solid science, I just (laughs) have to say. And for Seraphin and Megan... They're both very committed to keeping their love going. In in some ways, we kind of want to, what's that, have our cake and eat it too, because we really enjoy being embedded in these two places and like having so many different friends and like getting to experience your own city anew and a different city anew every few months is, is just amazing. But at the same time, like long term, we are realizing that if we leave it too long, we take a dip. And that is, takes a lot of work to get back out of it. And it, it's frustrating over a few years. So we're trying now to find ways that are sustainable to stay with each other for longer. And to be a little bit like something we've talked about quite a bit is like being a little bit braver. Because I think it's it really took a hit this year with being apart for so much of the year. We were together for really short periods. And then we had sort of eight weeks together at the end of summer. And it was like, oh, yes, this is what it's all about. And that's such a affirmative thing. Like the more time we spend together, like the better it is. So we just want to kind of like keep on remembering that and foregrounding that. But yeah, it is, it is sort of scary as well. <laughs> Humans are creatures of knowledge. We like to know exactly where everything is going. And it's fair to say we do know more about love than we ever have before. But there is no formula for love. 
And that means, everyone, you have to be brave. You have to step into that unknown and take the journey that is so wonderful and sometimes so scary that means falling in love. And that love doesn't have to be romantic. The benefits of love to our mental and physical health come from any source of love, platonic, romantic, with your pets, with a god. You just have to find some love in your life. Thank you so much to Seraphin, Megan and Bianca Acevedo for speaking to me for this episode. If you want to know more about the science of love, you can check out my book, Why We Love, where I explore these concepts in more detail. We're back in a few weeks to explore the neuroscience of touch. From prosthetics that can really feel to the importance of touch in bonding. In the meantime, join us in two weeks for another one of our focus episodes, where Eva's looking at our love for animals and their love for us. I'm Animation, and this is How We're Wired. How We're Wired is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. It's produced by Eva Higginbotham and executive produced by Neil Cowling and Michaela Hallam. Subscribe or follow now for free so you never miss an episode.